Mooney. You see the term on a menu and there's a certain sex appeal to it. We eat it in sushi, risotto, pasta, chong fun, wherever a chef can really make that unique umami taste and texture shine. Today's guest prefers it fresh from the ocean and dives into the California coastal waters for sea urchins, delivering them whole and live to restaurants, markets, and enthusiasts. And it's showing how quality enhances a, you know, it enhances a dining experience, and then it's just it's looking after this resource. This resource is giving us this energy, it's giving us this food, and, and it's life, and we're respecting that. Stephanie Mutz is the only woman sea urchin diver in California who straddles the high-end dining world and the practicality of balance that the ocean requires. I'm Carolyn Kissick. And I'm Colleen King. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress for this episode on sea urchin, where it comes from, and how it gets to your chopsticks. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome. How many times did I have to say uni to get this intro right today? It was a lot. It was it was many times. It's just a very aggressive word to start with. I think you did a great job. We got it, and I hope everyone enjoys it. <laughs> <laughs> Our interview with Stephanie was so great. We met her out in the San Pedro Hills right outside of downtown Santa Barbara at her friend's house, and we weren't sure if we were at the right place, and then we realized we're definitely at the right place because there's like fishing traps all over the spot, and just so beautiful. But Stephanie arrives in like a blaze of glory. She'd just come from a a health inspection uh, after diving all day. We just had such a good time with her. If you haven't had uni before, it kind of looks like an alien. It's, it's, you know, it's come, it's spiky, you know, they move. When you open them up, it's this beautiful like gold, yellow, um, and that's what you're harvesting. That's what you want to eat. And really that's gonads. So it's a reproductive organ. And I think... Some people may think that that sounds kind of gross, but we eat eggs, we eat all of these other things, you know, and it's extremely nutritious and delicious. Yep. It was so fun because I know her personally from her delivering seafood to a restaurant that I managed. So this is yet another instance where it was really fun to talk to somebody that I knew from like an arm's length and then be able to sit down and ask her all of the questions that I've always wanted to know. The fact that she delivers her product, which is sea urchin, directly to a restaurant is called Direct Marketing, which you'll hear in the interview. And let's talk about what that means uh, in the food world. Basically, that's when instead of having a distributor or in addition to having a distributor for your product, the farmer or the fisher person or the grower actually takes the product directly to the end consumer or market or restaurant in this case. Uh, which is a lot of work. A lot of work. I didn't know much about uni until I started uh, receiving it at the restaurant, but then I could go online and I could see how the weather conditions were, how much she was able to get, you know, if she decided that they weren't ready yet. I mean, all of those things in order to explain to your consumer base. I mean, it's really cool. I highly suggest it's C Stephanie Fish on Instagram. Great, great social account. So what's the best uni dish you've ever had? Probably say... The first time I had uni, and it was from Stephanie, so she delivered it to the restaurant, and in the back, you know, they were um, they were prepping it, so they're, you know, they're cutting it open, and it's sort of moving. I mean, I had never had anything like that. It's such a flavor experience. It's such a texture experience. That fresh, there's really nothing that can be Yeah, it. but there's also nothing worse than, like, 
bad uni. Do you know that texture I'm talking about? Yes, I do. It's really terrible, but good uni, like you said, you like just irreplaceable. And I think my favorite dish would be that sear chin chong fun at Mr. Juice. So good. Like, so good. So fresh. So easy to like start your meal with. And Colleen has some really good stuff for social for this. So please check it out because she's found photos of Cher and where Cher's hair looks just like a sea urchin. <laughs> <laughs> These are the depths of the evenings of Sorceress. Just want to say thank you to Stephanie for her time. And let's get right into the episode. Can you describe just an urchin for us? The ones that you die for the most. The red sea urchin. Well, it's it lives on a rocky bottom in kelp forest. Um, the mouth is on the bottom of the animal. So and, and it has, so it's that um, the mouth is facing down on the rocky reef, and it's got these little tube feet called pedalisaria, and it's how they walk, it's how they breathe, and it's how they see. Quote, you know, they don't have eyeballs, but it's how it's like a sensory thing. And, um, and there's a lot of, there's a little, it's a ball with a lot of spines and it has a hole on top and that's where it poops and that's where it spawns. Can you tell me the difference between all the different kinds of urchin? There's thousands of different species of sea urchin worldwide. Everywhere there's an ocean, there's an ocean, there's quite a few different species of urchin. And are they all edible? No. Uh, I know, um... I mean, no, no one's going to die, but it just doesn't taste very good. So we've got here in California at least five species of sea urchin. The red one is the one that we usually see on our plates. Uh, the purple one is a smaller lavender color one, and you're starting to see them more on your plates. Um, and there's a crown one that's just sour. It's just They're just not edible. Um, there's a really small white one called a liticinus, and it's um too small and then there's a pink one that's super super deep that we catch i guess you catch them in the i've caught them in the traps the spot prawn traps before um they're super brittle and super bitter in taste so like i remember the first time i went spot prawn fishing and i was like look at all these urchins i could do like these market ideas kept flying through my head and then i tasted them like wow (laughs) no way that's so funny (laughs) is there a market for uni that doesn't taste very good. Like in, for example, in coffee, when we have, uh, there's a lot of low quality coffee that still needs to find a home. And a lot of times it ends up in dark roast coffee or sometimes flavored coffee. Every industry has like sort of like a dumping ground where you need to find this and put it. But uni is such a particular delicacy. Is there a, is there a, does that happen? There's something. So Sierraton is graded from A to D. A grade is the best is your California gold. Um, and D is the worst. And so D grade is that's that's where the bad stuff goes and it's usually put in a jar. Really? Yeah, I even I was I don't even think it should exist. Um I had it and I didn't even know about this until recently when a local restaurant who I won't name um would like would buy like a few urchin from us every once in a while and then found out he put our name on their menu. But in but they were just buying them once in a while so they can like say that they bought from us but they were using D grade oh. urchin and I found this out I'm like you can't do that like we don't catch D grade urchin like, he just bought it from someone you know the jar from someone else sure. he didn't buy it from us he bought it from us he just wanted to like buy it from us once in a while to cover it up 
And then, you know, this is a small town. And so word got around and yeah, it didn't fly. There's such a specific culture of fishing in, in this area. Right. And so was, did people recognize immediately that that couldn't be possibly the grade that you catch? Um, no, it's, it was mostly like the amount that they were serving versus the amount they were buying didn't add up. Ah. So I had to question it. And then he came out, he came out with me with the, Oh, look, we just, we use this too. I'm like, what the heck is that? So I'll try. I'm like, is that any good? He's like, some bites are, some bites not so much. <laughs> oh no! And you're okay with serving this at your high end restaurant? Yeah. Did you expect for that to be something you had to worry about? Because you no no. Not and at it's all. it's been a few times like people like and especially with social media, somebody will say it or it'll be on a menu that it's our sea that that's our sea urchin and then they'll tag us or something. Hey, this is yours. Nope. It's not. Can you tell by a photo? No, they don't spy from us. That's oh, how I they're know. They're tagging you, but oh. yeah, they don't buy from us. There's two. There's two distributors. Two because all they do is buy from from us. That I will allow or their uh, customers to uh, to kind of claim. So you have a list, and so if someone's tagging you, you know exactly that they are not using yours. But you're such a big Our name isn't now. That big. What you say? Our list isn't that big. No, but, but, I, but I'm saying like they can't fool you. You know? No, but they can fool everyone else. Yeah, that's easily that's pretty. Scary. And we, I think we're not that big. I mean, I don't think we are. I think of it, we're just still small beans, and that's why we're just little small bean fishermen. Like, why are you using our name to pump you up, type thing? And it like. Yeah, no, I didn't think I could. I didn't think that we would get there. Yeah, no. because I mean, people put your name on their menus now because you're known for for your quality. Well, they want to have the connect. It's not just our name. It's that they want you know humans. This is, and this is part of our success. Is um, humans want to know where their food comes from now? You know, like they want to kind of go backwards, and they're more interested in where their food comes from. So then, it's a marketing tool for restaurants to put names on the menus, and I'm super okay with it as long as it's legit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we, and this is and it's a reason why we do we are in the direct marketing business. It's not just going out and picking some merchant and putting it on a truck and going home and never thinking about it again. We are, you know, we stay a little bit longer, take care, you know, keep them alive. There's a lot of care that goes into the quality and thought, thought goes into fishing and, you know, and not and choosing when not to fish because of, you know, lack of quality. And then that relationship that we have with our customers, with our chefs, with our um, direct consumers, um, we want to, we don't want to waste anybody's time by opening it up. Uh, you know, skinny or, or empty sea urchin or bad sea urchin. And we have lots of conversations. Um, pro- we don't promote each other for, you know, for the products. Um, it's just, it's a win-win all around. You know, when you have that team effort, when you are, when they are doing, when the chefs are just creating these insanely wonderful things with your product, you know, it's, it's 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 a it's a connection it's a connection with your community and it's showing how quality enhances it you know it enhances a dining experience and then it just it's looking after this resource you know we're 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 giving this resource is giving us this energy it's giving us this food 
and and it's life and we're respecting that we definitely respect that and that and taking it kind of to another level and it totally sounds hippy dippy but it's just it gives it gives our job more purpose it's more purposeful you know any monkey can catch an urchin it's difficult to catch a a good quality urchin for sure so what what are some of the things that you do and consider in order to ensure your quality um, and t- I partnered up with Harry LeCornick <laughs> to ensure quality. That helps. He has been, I've been fishing, I'm in the industry for his, my mom going on my 12th year. He's going on his 33rd year. So, um, so he's got a bit more experience than I do. And so that, um, is rad in itself, um, to have that experience, um, and then, um, we will survey an area. We'll kind of, it was just based upon kelp cover and historical fishing grounds that where we fished in the past, we will drop anchor and do a survey and we'll just, we'll open them up and see what the quality is. You'll go down, you'll get one, you'll bring it up and you'll well, no, we'll see. take a few. We'll go open them up underwater. Oh, wow. We'll do a few and, and then go to another area and go to a few and try to figure out the feeding patterns and and if there's any kind of pattern at all, sometimes there's, you know, okay, the hot, you know, ones on the high spots aren't very, you know, aren't very good, but the ones on the, you know, the, the feed lines going, you know, on through the outside of the, you know, along the sand type thing, or just pick the ones that are way, way deep inside the kelp. It all depends on the situation. So when you go down and you open it up, what are you looking for? I'm looking for color and I'm looking for yield, which is yield is like the amount of row that's inside each urchin. And that's size. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what's the color? Uh, I like a golden, yeah, a golden color, the not classic. too, yeah. You don't want it too pale, and you don't want it too brown or or even orangish. Like some, a lot of times the really orange colors, which we're actually seeing this time of year, um, late late uh, winter into spring, which is spawning season, it's a good indication they're spawning. And this year they decided to spawn all at the same time. Oh wow! <laughs> so what do you do when they're spawning, and you're you make the decision? not to harvest. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we'll go out and we'll look, you know, the, just a couple of weeks ago, we spent more than half the day surveying and looking. And then we found a spot that was pretty decent and, and pit, you know, and picked and what we call scratched from there. And there's times when we'll look and look and look all day and we just couldn't find good quality urchin. And we've come back and said, sorry, I told you we could, you know, it's, yes, it's good weather. Yes. All the conditions are okay, but we couldn't find any good quality urchin. We'll try again next week. But, you know, if we, if we don't, if we know we can't, it will wait a little bit longer. We're not going to be so diligent in getting the, you know, chasing the empties. Um, it's, it's because if you keep that urchin there in the ocean and eating, it'll, it'll replenish itself. It'll replenish. It's the gonads of the things that we're eating. So keep that thing there and, and, and even if it's legal size, keep it there and, and it'll be worth a lot more to everybody in a few months. Yeah. So that's the respecting the balance that you're talking about. Definitely. It's respecting the resource and uh, not wasting it. Yeah. And, it, it, and that doesn't happen all the time. In a, in a pretty typical year, they tend to spawn in different areas at different times so we can kind of chase it. But because of all the rain this year and big swells, it, it seems like they've decided to spawn all at the same time. <laughs> so they they reproduce by something called broadcast spawning. And certain chemical cues in the water, lunar cues, 
or even a you know downpour of rain and or um, big swells like we've been seeing this year. Uh, they and, and lucky for for us, we find them in you know in big groups, and so they're all in big groups, and they say, "Okay, let's have sex." And they whip the females spew all the eggs in the water column, and the males spew all the sperm in the water column, and they fertilize in the water column, become larvae. They travel, like, and there's a gajillion of them, and most of them don't survive. They travel through the water column for quite a few weeks, and the lucky ones settle down on a rocky reef, preferably like underneath more urchin, like uncle or something like that, and then grow up from there. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. So they are like shooting out their reproductive properties mm-hmm. and then hoping that they just like interact mm-hmm. in order that to create merge, something. That they that they connect, yeah. Wow. Fuse. That's amazing. I've never heard of it. And most like of that. them do do that, but then the larva most of the larvae don't survive. Yeah. So it's, Can you see the larva? How small are they? Under a microscope. I wish more people would know that um you know when you're cracking open a, a live sea urchin, it doesn't feel anything. It doesn't have a central cortex. You know, it's funny you you say that because, so the first time I encountered Uni was at Squirrel Uh and you delivered them and they, Matt was in the back and he was cutting, he was, you know, and I'm not sure the verbiage exactly, but he was cutting it and it was still, it was, it was moving and I almost like cried because I was, it was the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen in like up close Um, and I thought it was being hurt and he, he was kept reassuring me, but it was hard to sort of reconcile that in my brain because it was still moving. So it, does it have, he said it doesn't, it doesn't have, have a, a central cortex and have a brain and it does have a nervous system. Okay. It does, but it can't feel pain. So it is able to react, but not process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So some vegans consider it vegan because it doesn't feel anything. So eating the oysters too. Right. Interesting. I just heard about that a few years ago. I'm like, I'll go with that. <laughs> Another yeah. clientele. So, so they're basing their ethics on... Suffering. Yeah. So they're not suffering. No. So 99% of all uni we eat is harvested by hand. Where's the one, how's the 1% handed? Well, what's funny is I was researching farmed because it kept popping up when I was doing research, but then I couldn't find anyone that was actually selling farmed. No Ooh. one is. I could only find... People are doing research on it. I'm there trying to do it. In Alabama. Yeah, I saw that in Birmingham. Yeah, of all places. Yeah, and I was reading that what they're they feeding did it for years. And it was funded by the government. It was grant based, but then it looked like there was a disconnect as far as being able to fund it for the private sector. Do you think that's ever going to get get to the consumers? So I, well, I we haven't really farmed it, but we have tried to in the past. We've tried to catch it wild and then keep it in tanks at the abalone farm, and they just don't keep very well. They start beating each other up. They like, they believe it. I mean, they are, you know, invertebrates that just sit at the bottom of the ocean, but they move around a lot. And we never really realized how much they actually do move around. So they need a lot of space. In order to be cost effective. Yeah. So yeah. when you say that they're sort of beating on each other, what does that look like? Are they, they all of a sudden, um, they're, they're just, they're just running into each other and then their spines fall off and then they're bald. And processed, it's fine, but you know, it's it's just that it's not aesthetically pleasing because we sell them live and whole, so it didn't really work that way. Yeah. So now we're doing that with the purples, though, because they're smaller and they're hardier, and it seems to be working. So. so I'm really curious about 
price because in something where you control, I'm very familiar with, you know, supply chains when everything is controlled and you, that's how price is dictated. Yeah. But then for this, sometimes you're diving, you're looking all day and you come up. How do you price based on your time when you're going into like the ocean? You don't. <laughs> who, who determines price? Does, We're terrible do, economists. <laughs> Pretty good fishermen. Terrible business people. Um, no, we you can't look at it that way. I mean, we have raised our prices over the years because the effort has increased for sure. We, but one of our parts of our business plan is to make local seafood more accessible. So you don't want to make it outrageous, you know, outrageously priced. Um, I'm a firm believer too. If you're just fishing just solely to make money, you're in the wrong business. Right. So the restaurant is the one ordering it, but is it because the consumers are are demanding it or do these chefs really want to be able to feature? I think, I think it's a little both. I think it depends on the restaurant because there's. I know that there's a lot. There's a few restaurant a little chefs that come. So I want it. I want it, and they'll order a bunch, and then they'll order for a little bit, and then they'll drop off, and I like, and I'll kind of like follow up. It's like we just customers just won't do it. Interesting. Like he wants to slap them upside the head, and what's wrong with you? But their customers just don't want it, and then you've got the other end of, um, you know, the, I don't know many chefs who don't like sea urchin. Um, but the, you've got the other end where the cons- the customers just really, really want it. I feel like I've seen an increase in uni in creams and in pastas and sort of almost this way of like getting it on the menu, but not serving it the way I was introduced, which is like the whole gonad and it's, it's, you know, it's treated as like this extreme like delicacy and there's a story and I've sort of seen it periphery all over the country actually like even in the, in the midwest all the way to new york what kind, what's the difference between serving it the way that i first encountered it with you versus like in a pasta or in a sauce probably the ones that are in a butter or a pasta or a sauce are um they're they came for they're not aesthetically pleasing or they're they might be a little bit skinny they're just or they're leftovers from the week before it's not a bad thing yeah. you don't want to like disregard that it's totally just, it's just the chefs utilizing the product in a different way that can be preserved essentially a little bit used and utilized a little bit longer yeah um so there's i don't want to knock it there's nothing wrong with it um and i highly encourage it but um like maybe they over ordered or maybe that was a week an off week and then they make a butter or they make a sauce or they make it a, you know and then put it in a pasta um but the cool part like i have seen some pretty amazing creations from chefs with sea urchin whether it being you know creme brulee whether it being um ice cream um just uh, with pairing it with oysters and caviar on crepes on you know just again standing alone with um shoot with uh fermented mushrooms porcinis wow know, that sounds great it's absolutely insane um and and textures you know what textures do you can you pair them with and um it's just it's i'm i'm excited about the different ways that it can be utilized super excited um so when you're diving can you take us through sort of what a day looks like when it's just diving uh yeah get up early it's, it's about a two hour commute two to three hour commute to the fishing grounds 
uh, wetsuits on, mostly Harry does the surveys. Um, surveys going down and checking doing, it out. And checking the quality up. comes up and says yay or nay or, you know, sometimes, and sometimes we'll just be, just throw anchor and go cross our fingers and say, let's do what we can. Um, we are diving, so we're wetsuits. We are, we have a hookah system, so it's surface applied air. So there's a compressor on the boat and it takes air from the atmosphere and compre- and then a little engine compresses it into a tank. And I have a little hose into it that put, goes, puts into the tank. So I'm attached to the boat the whole time. We have a deckhand on board. He helps make sure that the engine's still going, you know, that the bear compressor's still going and um, make sure that, you know, our hoses are, and Harry and I are diving at the same time, um, are not uh, tangled up or tangled in kelp. And if there's, there's sometimes I'll, you know, it'll be a lot of kelp and I'll be weaving in and a kelp and then you just get stuck and you can't swim back to the boat. So there's opportunity for him to like pull you back in the boat. It's just, he makes, he pays for himself. He makes things a lot easier. <laughs> the deckhand? The deckhand. Yeah. I still make the sandwiches and the meals on the boat because I'm the best at that. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends. It's mostly sandwiches, but when it's really, really cold, I'll come up going, oh, it's an MSG day. So we'll get like top ramen out of the, the package. <laughs> <laughs> and then put urchin on it. Wow. <laughs> Top. <laughs> little, little, the best like, lo-fi, lo-fi high-fi I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. 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 Oh, my God. So much. Yes. I want a portrait of you on a boat eating Top Ramen with fresh eating. <laughs> <laughs> we have a few pictures on Instagram. With you. When you're harvesting them, are you just, I mean. A what? rake in a bag. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So when you're raking, how delicate are they as far as... Like, <laughs> they're not delicate. Not at all? <laughs> well, they're not delicate. I mean, but sometimes you have, to, you have to be careful not to poke a hole in them with your rake. I mean, in the same moment, here's me as a girl with not a lot of testosterone. And then all the ones with holes, Harry did those. Oh. Harry got those. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So you have an advantage. I'm just kidding. It's, it's, I, it's a, but it seems like I, he, he might have more, uh, you know, so I mean, he definitely has a lot more strength than I do. So. Yeah. Yeah. You were mentioning that mentioning the testosterone earlier that that's part of why you decided to do the direct marketing. Is that right? Yeah, I, you, when I first started this, everyone was making a living off quantity, not necessary. I mean, it was quality, but not not solely on quality. It was um, you know coming to three thousand pounds, and I started doing it, going, I can't do that, and it was a dollar a pound. Like we were stoked if we got a dollar a pound then, so I guess that could go into a, a typical urchin diver goes out in the ocean, picks a bunch of urchin, comes back to the pier and then sells to a processor. They just drop their whole load onto a processor and, and goes home. Something to be said about that. <laughs> um, and then that truck then goes to a plant, a processing plant where they are put, they essentially all cracked open and then put into trays, separated and into size and color and everything and put into trays. And then, but there are some, some uh, preservatives and some alum, or I'm sorry, some alum, which is a preservative and nitrates to make the, the color brighter is added to it. It does alter the taste a bit. It's just, a, um, it just, I, it just doesn't, t- it's not a bad thing. It's just different. Um, my Harry, my business partner, Harry likes to, to use the analogy of your store-bought, you know, Vaughn's tomatoes 
um, would be the tray urchin. And then your heirloom tomatoes from your garden is your urchin right out of the shell. So just two different products. Um, and then so what, what we do is we go diving all day and come back and we do have ways in which we can keep them alive. We keep them alive. We hang them outside the harbor on a mooring and keep them alive because we sell them live and whole. And they, um, and then we sell them directly to chefs, directly to consumers. And so they're the ones that are opening it up and it's very fresh. It's a little, a little bit more work goes into it from the chef. Quite a few chefs don't like that work. So um, quite a few chefs don't, um, don't want the relationships with either purveyors or suppliers. They want it easy. And in my opinion, if you want easy, you shouldn't be using seafood. So it all depends upon the chef of how much they want, how much effort they want to put into it. But as far as freezing, how does that affect quality and flavor? Do you know? Yeah, I heard it makes it bitter. I heard oh. the freezing makes it bitter. But um, there's a way in which you can ahead of time, especially if you don't want to serve them in the shell, that you can uh, you can get the prep guy to open them all up, and um, and then you keep them in an iced briny container with a lot of ice brine and a dash of acid hmm. and then it preserves them for like two weeks wow yeah yeah I was reading because you you teach classes I do and is that because there was a necessity in the marketplace to know how to prepare them like for example in coffee it's funny because there's so much effort put into on the, in the high-end specialty market making sure that the quality is preserved all the way through. And this is coming from right. like multiple countries, shipping containers, the whole thing, roasting process, QC, and then it gets to the consumer. And oftentimes they, you know, it's, it's not brewed well. And it's like the last step, you know, was there, did you feel that that was happening or did you just hear a huge demand of the kind of preservation tactics that people wanted? Well, we do, we provide that, you know, we provide that quality education no matter what, um, just because we want them to buy more, we don't want them to waste it. We want them to be serving the best quality. Um, but I don't. It, I don't teach. I don't have any formal classes about oh, that. I okay. just teach. I teach college on the side. It was what I was supposed to do. What I was supposed to do when I grew up, and this whole fishing thing got in the way. Well, now you're doing both. Look at you. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah. What are you teaching? I teach environmental science um, at the college level. Oh, nice. And I do use that platform to teach about decision making and your seafood purchases and um, educating them on how seafood's harvested policy and regulations um, I do bring my best not you know what I know best about um, into the classroom um, but you know I'm learning a lot about ag stuff now too because of it's just it's just a it's just an, another interest of mine and so similar to to uh, marine the marine environment and markets and like I just went got back from eco farm up north and because I kind of figured well one for my to go do some um, professional development for teaching but also they the farmers have been doing direct marketing a lot longer than us fishermen have so just getting some ideas and some language is what I really got out of 
out of it because um, I'm not a form a, tra- a formally trained marketer at all, and we're shit at sales <laughs> sales salesmen. Like we're not gonna. T- I'm not gonna try to convince you to the like urchin or to sell urchin. Yeah. I just want people to know what we have, and then it's like, yep, we have that. So what is EcoFarm? It's it's a educational marketing um, um, conference four days about um, regenerative agriculture, uh, soil or carbon sequestration, and so you know soil science. The future is soil. The future is soil and the ocean. I'm I'm absolutely convinced. It's like taking care of our ocean, taking care about our quality of the soil. We're you know and um, we're gonna be fine. We can have all the, we can drive all we want type thing if we figure out how to sequester this stuff mm-hmm. and, and utilize it and make money sequestering and or utilizing it. Make it, make a living at it. Um, and I'm not saying like get huge rich, just make a living off of it because otherwise it's just spinning wheels. It's not, um, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not going to be sustainable. No one's, no one's going to, you know, do a whole bunch of work for nothing. Um, so what did what did I get from that? Yeah, like what are some of the talking points that you're finding that are successful to because really our our whole goal with this is like we're not trying to take a position one way or another. We're just trying to give it's like what you said. You're just trying to tell people what you have. You know, um something that helps, it definitely helps me. It helps me understand what the heck I'm doing. Um transparency. Just being transparent. Yeah, we went fishing today. I didn't, I didn't catch anything. That's just the way it is sometimes. Does it yep. make me a bad fisherman? No. doesn't make me a really great one. But um, it's just it, it just it happens. Or we broke down. Or um, today was really hard. Today was cold. Or, you know, what we have. I'm, I'm learning to say no a lot better. Which is... Which helps my sanity yeah absolutely <laughs> boundaries like, no, are good can't do it can't do it and and more comfortable with with um with not you know not having the capability of doing it because i'm you know because i'm doing x y and z over here i'm not i don't know and that, you know it's also it's also nice to see that other people are working just as hard as you i guess um and you can just resonate with that you know, that hard work and eco farm definitely is a bit of unwinding as well. Um, so you still had to work a bit, but I still, I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't go diving for that part of the week, you know, the end of the week. And I didn't have to get up at two o'clock in the morning to go to my market on Saturday and a buddy do it for me. <laughs> I had to sleep in, which is <laughs> So when you sleep in, how, how late do you sleep in? Oh, like seven or eight. Yeah. <laughs> I still like to do our, our Orange County market. So that's pretty much a sure thing. If you want to see, you want to see me, you can go, <laughs> get, uh, you can go to uh, Costa Mesa. That's quite a drive. <laughs> not, it's not so bad at, at two o'clock in the morning. That's so true. No, I bet you get there in 40 minutes. Yeah. No, that, not that far. Not that bad. <laughs> but, um, but to yeah. Stephanie pedal to the metal 2 a.m. driving down to Orange County. <laughs> now I just yell at people, the speeders. I need to <laughs> listen to the radio to make sure there's no wrong way drivers why that market because you're talking about farmers markets right i it's just a market that we have in costa mesa it's just uh it's just us so it's, it's just you and, and where is it I don't want to 
tell people the exact place because I don't want them to just show up. Yeah. Um, because I only bring, that's why I always say text me because I bring what we need because I can't put it back in the water again. Right. I can't sell it. I don't really want to go around and try to hot sell it because that just demeans the, that mind demines the, um, the value of it. Yeah. So if we keep, we can keep it in the water, can keep it alive. I can sell, I can sell me. I mean, I do keep extras just in case somebody does come just a spurt, you know, just comes and finds me type thing. So you post online and then you tell people where you're going to be. And then you ask all the consumers, not just chefs to text you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so you're almost, they're pre-ordering. They're pre-ordering. It's just, again, it's just, you're reducing waste. You're reducing waste of that resource. And 98% of the time people show up because if they don't show up, then they don't get to order again. Yeah. So, you know, unless something detrimental happened and they they contact me but it's just i don't know it's not respectful of the resource it's not really respectful of my time yeah um but i but i rarely get it we and then we post we post that we're going to be in san francisco too we'll drive out to san francisco and that's been super successful so that definitely and then i'll meet people on the way to san francisco as well. So when you're transporting them, what does that look like? If they're in, in the water? In a refrigerated van. Refrigerated van in water? No. No. They're just, they can live out of water for quite a few days in cold. Really? Yeah. Is there a specific temperature range? Refrigerator. 40, Any refrigerator. 40 degrees, 45 degrees. Yeah. We were just talking to someone who does cut flowers and about the cold chain of it needing to stay within a specific range. He's that like they, that fussy. Yeah. <laughs> and he is even uh, easier than, than flowers. <laughs> That's wild. Like, but I also, I don't just do, um, when I get to San Francisco, it's not just restaurants. I'll meet consumers. So we'll meet outside the Morris. But they all have, they're also out there, like, have all these questions, too, like how to prepare. Yeah. How to keep them. What do I do? What is this? And what do I do with that? And um, they're definitely, that's why we go to Orange County. That's why we go to San Francisco. People are definitely uh, more adventurous. So what's this? How do you eat it? Okay, I'll try 20. Nice. Instead of Santa Barbara's, what is that? Ew, gross. Oh, and it's like, step <laughs> aside. <laughs> well, it's funny because this generation of like sort of what they call are calling foodies, yeah. they're so adventurous and they, they, they're like thirsty for this, this knowledge. And I think that's part of the marketing, the farm to table, right? They want to feel this connection. But in general, I think in the fishing industry, most Americans don't really understand what they're consuming, they don't ask questions. And part of what we're trying to do is- Where it comes from, how it's raised, what's being, what's part of the process of it being raised, you know, what's being added to it. Yeah, I mean, do you have opinions on like farmed fishing or imported or any of that? I have a fantastic story about farm fishing. Really? I used to crab. I used to work on a crab boat. And I was at the back of the boat and I was the- um, I baited the traps. So the trap would come up and soaking in the water for a few days, quite a few days. Um, it would come back, come back on the boat, and be, theoretically be full of crab. And the bait would be all bones. There'd be no, no meat left. It would just be all bones. And the bait, what we got was from the scraps from the fish market, from the local fish market. You're feeding crabs fish. Fish. Yeah, you know scraps. Like, growing up, we did chicken. Is that that common? That you can sometimes, sometimes, okay. yeah. So I empty all the crab out and then I take, I empty the bones out and then I put new, new bait in and then it goes back out again. Well, I just noticed that 
for a, like for a hot moment, like during this certain time of year that, um, the bait was coming up, not eaten. The crab wasn't eating it. The, the, the lice, the sea lice wasn't eating it. And then I realized that we had within our, cause they had, they had, uh, tags on them on the bones even they had little paper plastic tags on it said farmed salmon on there and so I and like it just kept happening week after week and I finally turned to to the captain I was working with I'm like these guys and granite granite crab are scavengers they eat everything eat dead things even they were not eating the farm salmon Wow. And I was already convinced, I mean, for multiple reasons of, you know, the only way you can be profitable with farmed fish is to, you know, have it in them in this close, you know, concentrated numbers. And then you put any living thing in concentrated numbers, diseases spread and diseases spread easily. So you got to add antibiotics. And then in order to, you have to feed these things. And so you have to feed them six fish for every one fish. You feed them like fish oil pellets. You have to... Um, you know, and then they're, because they're all concentrated, they're literally, you know, there's, then there's a concentration of high nutrients of their waste, um, in one area. And so none of that is, is a good, you know, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And so, and there's, and I think it had to do with either the antibiotics or it had something to do with the dyes that they put into salmon, that the crab didn't like it. And I was thinking, going the, I never I was never a fan of farmed fish, but if they're not eating it, I'm not eating it. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it. Ha- I mean, it still happens. They just weren't eating it, and I was like, I don't know why, but I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to totally knock it. There potentially could be a a future for fit farmed fish, but not right now. There's the technology's not there. Um, shellfish farmed, absolutely. You yeah. know, especially filter feeders abalone oysters mussels absolutely there's a place for those because of their size and because of their life history characteristics um they're still trying to figure out how to farm sea urchin but it's it's just not it doesn't seem to be like panning out it's then you got to find food again it's a whole food thing as well yeah what i was reading about in birmingham was the food they were didn't want to use kelp and so they were they were like creating this other. I wonder why they don't use kelp. Maybe because there's no kelp in Birmingham. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's why it's so weird to it's me that so they weird. wanted to do it there. Uh, they did it there in tanks. Yeah, um, Andrew Zimmern's the one who told me about so those wild. first. So when someone's in the supermarket, let's say that they don't have access to fresh, fresh fish and they go in, what should they be looking for to be able to make a decision? Let's say they're in the Midwest, for example, landlocked state. I mean, should they not be eating fish? I don't know. I can't say that. Yeah. There's a reason I live on the, <laughs> at the beach. Totally. Um, but I would say, I would say wild U.S. caught. Cool. And for anybody. I would tell someone, I would encourage someone to not get their, to not buy their seafood from Vons or some kind of trade market um, if, they, if it's possible. But their next bet is wild U.S. caught. I mean, if seafood is definitely very difficult. There's a lot of fraudulent stuff like, behind it. There can be. And most of that stuff actually is 
stuff coming in from overseas and it's already mislabeled before it comes here. Um, they don't have the um, regulations that we do. So U.S. Can, U.S. seafood can be a little bit um, more expensive because we are more highly regulated. It's more expensive for us to go fishing. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to live next to a harbor, next to an ocean, buying direct like from a from a fisherman's market directly from fishermen you'll get the best quality and the best price yeah um so that's the ultimate ideal situation but minimum i tell people just wild us when i moved to the west coast it was the first time i saw things labeled that it was had color added everywhere else i had never seen that and huh. i don't know if that's just the timing was right or I mean I lived in the east coast midwest I've lived all over and the first time I saw that was here and it I had no idea that people were that that was being added probably my whole marketing yeah totally salmon the dye is added to farm salmon because they're just being fed little like fish pellets and the what's giving them the salmon that pink color is the krill that they and they eat in the wild and they're not eating that in the farms in the farm pin in the pin so if you if you gave me this filet that was white and called it salmon i tell you to go pack sand no way so they have to put dye in it to convince people that it's um salmon it is salmon but again the reason why the the flesh is pink is because they're eating krill in the wild they're not eating krill in the farm pen they're eating something else that doesn't cause their flesh to turn pink is it because that's too expensive because it's just more cost effective to give them and then when is the when is it dyed? Are the pellets, do they contain a dye? And no. then they're ingesting it? Or how does that work? After they're filleted, I believe, or after they're fished. Sea urchins are what they eat. The color of the roe, the yield, the t- flavor, it's, it has everything to do with what they're eating. So that's why you'll have, you can have different colors. You can have different, you know, variety. Even the outside, if you, if you, even the red urchin, it's the same species. Some of them are a lighter color red and some of them are like more of a maroon color. Same species, just something different they're eating. I like to use the analogy of like, oh, some certain humans have different skin colors. So do urchins. But there are different species as well. So don't get that confused either. So the purple is iodine. Is that it's an iodine and it's just and it's basically it's a it's a life history characteristic of this of this animal, yeah. And it's now you have me wondering how biochemically where the iodine comes from. I want to go look at that. I'm like, where is it coming from? <laughs> I want to look at that now. Yeah, I know the cat like the shells made out of calcium carbonate that comes from the ocean. So the iodine comes from the ocean. Yeah, at some capacity. So I mean, I mean, well, it comes from the kelp. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Interesting. Um, <laughs> let's go into maybe the environmental impact of the way that that affects your job. So sometimes you post online, the weather is not right. There will be no urchin today. What does that mean? It means I can sleep in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it just means that we're limited by nature. We're limited by weather. Um, there's very, there's quite a few things that are out of our control. Um, it does not happen very often. So that's a good thing. You know, we're pretty, um, if, if, if we don't have it, then pretty much nobody has it. There's, I think there's in our Harbor, there's probably one other knucklehead that's a little crazier than us. He's younger than us too. So that has something to do with it. 
So sometimes, sometimes if someone's really jonesing, I'll send, I'll send him over because he's he's on the same page with quality, same page as us is for quality. Nice. Yeah. And then as far as the population going up and down based on weather patterns, how does that work? Oh, population going down with weather weather patterns. Um, you know, it has every, it, it, it's mostly with um, kelp cover. This population is going up and down. That's what's, that's its food. Um, so, um, and a lot of times, like right now, there's a whole bunch of urchin out there. They're just not very good quality urchin because mm. they just spawned. Right. So it's not like I can't find any. I just can't find any good ones. Right. Um, so that's a huge difference. Um, and or with this, with the water being uh, warmer than it has been in years. There's actually 2015 was the warmest I've ever anyone's ever seen it. And um, the kelp grows a lot slower, therefore the urchins grow a lot slower. So it takes a longer time for them to get to their minimum size limit. We so we as a regulation here in California, we have a minimum size limit. Um, we're limited by a size, a minimum size, the number of divers, sometimes days of the week, and markets. We can't go fishing if we don't have a market. And who regulates that? California Fish and Wildlife. And there's officers that enforce the laws and it's, yeah, it's encouraged. It's, it's looking out for the future of our resource. Yeah. Yeah. I know I just interviewed a woman in Ethiopia and she was talking about sustainability and she said, everybody talks about sustainability all the time, but really that means not just environmental sustainability, but it means having, still having coffee, still having urchin around. It's about like just the resource itself. Fishermen are your, fishermen, farmers, coffee growers, they're your biggest conservationists. You're, you're more, because it's, especially it's our livelihood. If that resource is gone, I'm out of a job and I hate teaching anatomy. So. <laughs> <laughs> How did you how did you get into fishing? It found me. <laughs> um, um, well, I, I yeah, I guess I was I was finished grad school. I went to Australia for grad school, and I was reminded actually today how I was you know I wanted I wanted to be a researcher. I wanted to be a policy consultant and. In reality, I was um, I was teaching part time when I finally, and I was bartending because when you live in Santa Barbara in your twenties, you have to have five jobs in order to keep it get ahead. But I wanted to go into all this like policy and change the world, and I could do better, and I could change the systems for the better if that makes fishermen happy and policymakers happy, and that was just a pipe dream. And so I went to um, I started so I was deckhanding on boats and. Um, and then 2009, 2008, 2009 happened and I got laid off. I was the last one hired, first one fired for teaching. That was what I was supposed to be and I grew up. And um, so you have a bit of a freak out and say, gosh, what do I do now? And let's try this fishing thing. And it worked. So here we are. Here we are. <laughs> and, 10 years later. <laughs> and so when you could wake up tomorrow and do absolutely anything and be an expert in it, what would you do? I would do what I'm doing now. Yeah. And more and more, I, especially since I'm like, this is just kind of a slow season right now. 
I'm realizing how much I really like it. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. So important to love what you do. Yeah. It doesn't seem, everyone out tells me you work so much, but it doesn't seem like work when you like it so much. Oh. I love it. <laughs> boom, boom. Cool. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Thanks for I am not. <laughs> Thanks again to Stephanie for taking the time to chat with us. You can find Stephanie online at cstephaniefish. And stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the musical and cultural identity of the region and product discussed in the episode. And if you haven't yet, please like and subscribe. You can find us online at sorceress underscore underscore. We are a small group of radical women trying to make it happen, and your support means so much. Hello, this is Danielle Maggio, delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. For today's segment, I'm focusing on surf music. Surf is really special in how it assumes an identity that is attached to a particular place. And so in this case, that place is the Southern California coastline. So I chose a surf music playlist because I wanted to highlight and honor the physical landscape from which our sourced ingredient comes from. And what I found when researching the surf genre was that it's an incredible story of musical identity and immersive environments. And like a lot of genres in America and really around the world, it's also a story of cultural hybridity. So the surf sound, the musical characteristics, the general sonic feel of surf is meant to mimic the immersive environment of the Southern California coastline. This connection between content and context is most notably heard in the heavy use of effects that is put on the electric guitar. By adding a ton of reverb and echo on the guitars, the sound becomes wet. So there really is this unequivocal connection between musical identity and regional identity that's found in surf music. Emerging in the late 1950s as a strictly instrumental genre, surf music was a geographically specific byproduct of the rock and roll revolution that was sweeping the nation at the time. The most pioneering musician of the surf rock instrumental era is hands down Dick Dale who was born Richard Monsieur to a Lebanese immigrant father. Dale moved to California in 1954 with his family and became an avid surfer. Using his Middle Eastern guitar technique, Dale combined his two passions to create a new music associated with the cultural geography of surfing. In 1962, Dale recorded a version of the song Misserlou, an extremely popular folk song throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean region. But it was Dale's reinterpretation and rearrangement of the song that made it popular throughout Western culture. It wasn't until a little bit later when vocal groups incorporated lyrics into surf music. These vocal groups added a new dimension to the surf genre by adding lyrics that were about surfing. Now, a reason why people maybe don't have as much love for the vocal harmony groups is because it did create a much more mainstream version of surf. And this mainstream pop product of surf culture really helped to usher in 
a full-fledged industry by the early 1960s that comprised of music, movies, you had magazines, you had specific clothing, and you also had surf gear. And all of these commodities within these various entertainment industries were marketed toward a very specific regional and cultural group. But more than simply a pop culture craze or chain of commodities, surf was the first major music style that evolved from the modern California experience. And it was a very specific California experience. There's no denying or debating that surf music established a musical identity specifically for white, urban, middle-class youth of Southern California. Surf music was seen as reflecting of and giving expression to an idealistic cultural identity of white youth. However, once the social and cultural shifts of the mid-1960s began to take place, first with the British invasion of the Beatles in 1964, the growing civil rights and black power movements, accumulating protests against the Vietnam War, and of course the psychedelic counterculture and the hippie movement, the cultural relevance of surf was almost immediately swept away. Once surf music was globally disseminated out into the world, Groups that identified as surf or simply sounded like surf groups began to pop up all over the place, including in landlocked states and countries where surfing was not even an option, let alone a cultural identity. Now the immersive environment that initially inspired the sound of surf became a conceptual geography, a feeling, a vibe associated with Southern California and the realities and mythologies of that culture and that landscape. The last 10 years has seen an increasing number of bands that can loosely be grouped under the name Indie Surf. And these bands take advantage of at least one or more of the elements of surf to give their music a feeling of that immersive environment specific to Southern Cali. Exploring music for cultural hybridity, it really just allows us to tap into these concepts like identity and environment that sometimes seem fixed, when in reality they're much more flexible than we realize. By recognizing the flexibility of something like musical identity, we can begin to see and hear how sounds can reflect more than one tradition or place at a time, even for a genre so deeply connected to a particular place like surf we can begin to understand how music can construct new identities while reflecting existing ones, just like it did for Dick Dale as a Lebanese-American musician, and just like it continues to do for global pop surf groups all over the world. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous, fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. Special thanks to our donors who all helped make this possible. Megan King, Ray King, Christopher Kissick, Deb Maggio, Gus and Mary Ann Bonderheide, 
Jose Posadas, Courtney Minnick, Jen Apodaca, Vanessa Brown, Jonathan Joseph, and Max Keeley. We couldn't have done it without you. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress. Until next time, stay curious.